everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And I am Ian Rowe, also a resident fellow at AEI. And today we are excited to be joined by Amy Wax. She is a professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania. If you're interested in something she's written recently, her latest piece at the University of Chicago Law Review Online is about the dubious legal status of workplace diversity mandates. But today she is joining us to talk about education and kids. And we wanted to start by asking her about a recent incident at Georgetown University. A couple of law professors were sitting around chatting on what they thought was a private chat on social media, but it turned out that they were still live and one of the students caught them. And one of the professors kind of sadly said this. She says, unfortunately, you know what? I hate to say this. I end up having this angst every semester that a lot of my lower ones, that is lower grades, are Blacks. It happens almost every semester. So that professor has been fired, and so has, I think, the professor who is actually listening to this conversation on the other end of it. That's how horrible this statement was. He may have been resi- He may have resigned. He, oh, he resigned. I'm sorry. Yes. Under duress, I'm sure. Absolutely. So, Professor Wax, welcome. We would love to get your thoughts on this matter. We know it may sound very familiar to you. Yes, it, it does. I got into trouble, got into hot water with my dean a couple of years ago when some of the students in the Black Law Students Association who, who'd been trolling me for a while found that I had had a, a little exchange with Glenn Lowry on his Blogging Heads program about the performance of Black students at Penn Law School. And I had commented that I had rarely seen Black students graduating at the very top of the class. And also in my own experience, because I teach, I have taught for 20 years a first-year law class in civil procedure that only maybe a handful, if that, of Black students had made it into the top half of my class. So I was commenting on this in the context of a discussion about affirmative action. Glenn Lowry, a professor at Brown of Economics, is very interested in affirmative action in higher education, and he had asked me my opinion about it, so I had made the observations that I did as part of the discussion. But this was plucked out of context and viewed as a nefarious act of disrespect to the black students and evidence of my racism. I wasn't fired because I have tenure. Tenure still seems to hold good. I don't know how much longer that will occur, but for now. But this Georgetown professor made a similar comment based on her own experience in her class, her negotiation class. To her dismay, too often her black students did very poorly, and that created an immediate firestorm. She didn't have tenure, so she got fired. And what struck me about this incident is a couple of years had elapsed since what happened to me, is that her incident was really mine on steroids. Because of past developments, the past couple of years, it struck me that in the response to her that even talking about disparities in performance has now become completely taboo to the point of utter denial. It is defined as racism to notice, as, as some people on the right call it, you know, to notice actual facts. And affirmative action can't be questioned. And it really goes beyond, I think we're at the point now where 
a message is being sent that ordinary measures of merit, of proficiency, of knowledge, the kinds of things that are measured by law school evaluations and grades, that those are so suspect or there's such indicia of white supremacy that they have been utterly discredited. I mean, that's the message that I'm kind of taking. The other striking thing about my incident and hers is, you know, we're hired as law professors to evaluate our students, to judge them, to, in effect, rank them in their ability to perform in their professional role. We are the gatekeepers of the profession. And the dismissal of this person and the punishment of me, I should mention that my punishment was that my first-year class was taken away from me, my mandatory first-year class, in punishing us. In effect, the powers that be are saying that that role as gatekeepers, as assessors, as judges of expertise and proficiency, that role is, is discredited. We shouldn't be performing it anymore. Any kind of judgment of better or worse is some kind of token of white supremacy. That's, that's really the only way that I can interpret it. I'm struggling to kind of understand the message that is being sent here. So we, we have to take a code of silence almost about our students and, and how they're doing, especially if they're, if they're minority students. So is the assumption that all of these students are just equally exceptional, and if not for these white racist law professors, they would be excelling? Well, I think there is this suggestion that all the students are equally capable, which, you know, really is, is very implausible on some level, and, but also that the whole notion of being capable, of knowing law, of being proficient and developing expertise, that whole notion has come under a cloud. We no longer can trust our judgments of merit. They're just a kind of false construct that has been created to entrench the people who are already privileged, who are already ensconced in their comfortable positions. And in order to shake up the order, it's necessary to just sweep them away, get rid of them. And you don't, you don't just see it in law schools. I mean, you see it K through 12 on up. You see it in these pronouncements about how math, rigorous math is, is a form of white supremacy, that showing your work is racist, that different groups have different styles of learning, that having standards and grading people for their knowledge is racist. I mean, really, the whole system is coming under attack. But it, in it's interesting orders. because because I think we usually think of law school as something which is the admissions process is very focused on LSAT scores. You know, a difference of a point or two can really make all the difference in what school you're admitted to. And then beyond that, you know, you have kids sitting for the bar exam, which really is, you know, are they going to be able to practice law or not? And, and the scores matter so much. And yet law school seems to be now the next place where we're just, we've just decided any objective measure is going to be a problem. Well, right. I mean, we have so many contradictions in the system, which is completely tied up in knots. The question is whether the reliance on the LSAT at one end and the reliance on the bar exam and you know, other hurdles like that will survive. 
this kind of rhetoric. I mean, it's a very dynamic situation and it changes from month to month and from week to week. So I don't know the answer to that question. But yes, it is bizarre. I mean, admission to law schools, certainly in the top law schools, is very much by the numbers. The LSAT is all important. And of course, the skills that traditionally we have honored in law are, you know, highly stylized. They're very rigorous. They're very objective. We logic and and evidence and, and all of that good stuff really matters. And some people are better at it than others. And that's, you know, just the way it is on the one hand. And the law firms still seem to care about that stuff, although I think they're under a lot of pressure not to care or to develop alternative measures of quality. I'm not sure what those are going to be. So the system is very much in flux, but it's under pressure from this kind of ethno-Marxist ideology, which is anti-merit, anti-conventional measures of merit. On the other hand, Blake Smith just wrote a very sharp essay in Tablet in which he argued that the wokeness has learned how to accommodate merit because what's happening now is that minority students have this firm belief, which is peddled to them, that racism is keeping their merit sort of under a cloud that is not allowing their merit, their true merit to be expressed. And if they don't do well on standardized tests and then get to college or law school and do less well, that's all because of racism. And if racism was finally solved and cured, then the cloud would lift and they would instantly do brilliantly. So merit is still out there, but merit is being interfered with. So that's that's sort of another ideology that I think is out there. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. So, so let me just push a little bit. So let's assume that all the students at Georgetown pass the admissions criteria. They they performed well enough on the, the LSAT. So they they are not equally capable, but theoretically, they're all have crossed the threshold of capability, or right. theoretically, they should all be able to perform and succeed at a Georgetown. So if it does, in fact, turn out that there is a disparity, a racial disparity amongst minority students, and I, and by the way, I would imagine there's Lots of variation, even within this category called minority. But let's say there's a particular category of minority, and there is a racial disparity, and you assume that all of them were above a certain threshold coming in. What would you then attribute it to? Is there a group effect, or what? What would, what would you attribute those disparities to? Well, I mean, first of all, I think you need to be careful here because in assuming that they are above a certain threshold to succeed, I think you are bypassing an important element of what determines how people do in a very competitive environment like Georgetown, all right, which is a top 10 law school, or I I don't know their exact ranking, but they're certainly highly ranked. You have students with, you know, a 160 LSAT, which is actually not a bad LSAT. I mean, it's certainly well, in the top quarter, it's probably higher than that. I'm not sure because I haven't seen the stats. Competing with students that have a significantly higher LSAT, maybe 170. So we're talking about, you know, 10 or 15 point disparities in LSAT. 
And when, when you have an environment in which people are competing with others who are more proficient, who have higher scores, that makes it very difficult for the students with the lower scores to do comparatively well. I mean, once people get to law school, the students are ruthlessly ranked. There's a mandatory curve. And the classes are geared to the proficiency level of the students. So classes at Arizona State Law School with a lower average LSAT are going to be at a slower pace and a simpler presentation than at Yale Law School. And that's just a fact. I mean, that is just the way it is. So someone who would do just fine at Arizona is going to struggle at Georgetown or Harvard or Yale. So I think the point I'm trying to make here is that how you do in law school is unavoidably comparative. It's set up to be that way. I mean, we have a hierarchical society in which, you know, some people outcompete others. We have elite law firms. We have less elite law firms. We have elite jobs. We have less elite jobs. Not everybody is going to be able to compete at the highest level, especially in in these environments. So that is the reality that we're dealing with. The question you need to ask is, well, you know, what do we do about that? Should we have a lottery system for law schools? Should we not have a pecking order in law schools? You know, should we not have a situation where the average LSAT at Yale Law School is, you know, close to perfect? whereas the average LSAT at a, a lower-ranked law school is, is very far from perfect, but good enough to be a decent, well-functioning lawyer? These are profound questions that we, we need to ask about the structure of our meritocracy. But I would reject the notion that the fact that students at competitive law schools that are admitted with less stellar credentials do less well, that that's somehow the fault of the school. No, it's the fault of what I would term, for lack of a better word, a mismatch. And actually, mismatch really means something else. But what I mean is over, I will use the term overplacement. Students who are overplaced in institutions where most of the other students have better test scores, indicia of better proficiency, higher achievement, you cannot expect them to do as well. That just isn't going to happen. I mean, take Caltech. The average SAT math at Caltech is 800. All right, that's a perfect score. If you take someone with a 700, which is a great score in math, very, very good score, and put them at Caltech, they are going to have one heck of a time. They are going to be in the middle, average, or bottom of the class. So that, that's the reality. Well, short of abolishing these standards and elite law firms and elite law schools <laughs> and, and the LSATs and, and all. changing society and entirely. Changing society society completely, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you have actually talked about sort of some of the factors that lead to these disparities in the first place. And racism is not at the top of your list, I think. So can you sort of talk to us about the earlier interventions, perhaps, that we could be thinking about so that you don't get these situations where Georgetown law professors are lamenting 
very sadly, the situation where they have to give poorer grades to Black students because they're not performing as well. And I know you've gotten into trouble for saying these things, too. So we're happy to hear your thoughts. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, I mean, racism is not at fault. If you go back far enough, it's it's a not implausible hypothesis that racism has a lot to do with it. I mean, I wrote a book called Race, Wrongs and Remedies. And the premise of the book was the following, you know, even if these disparities or other dysfunctions, let's say, in the black community, like family breakdown or high crime rates, which, by the way, you know, a lot of people won't even talk about today, even if all of those can ultimately be traced back to discrimination and slavery and quote unquote racism, which is, I guess, what you're referring to in the past, certainly. And I would say those conditions have have really abated and improved today, which is something else that that others would disagree with. But let's assume that even if that's the cause, the remote cause, the real question is, what can be done about it now? I mean, here is what I would contest. I would say that even if we scrub racism from our society, whatever that means, racial discrimination, in the old-fashioned sense of the term, and I know that racism, you know, is a word that is very promiscuous and has been expanded to mean whatever it is that people want it to mean, but I'm kind of talking about just discriminating against minorities because of their minorities. Even if we got rid of all of that, we would still be stuck with these problems of disparities gaps in test scores by race, which are real and they persist, and there's no shoving them under the rug, despite attempts to do so, and black family breakdown, a 73% out of wedlock birth rate, which is quite dramatic. We would still be stuck with, you know, many times higher crime rates because, and here's what I argue in the book, a lot of the injuries of racism have become incorporated into behavior, into human capital deficits on the education side, into dysfunctional behaviors on the family formation side, into a deficit in a respect for law on the criminality side. And going forward, what's the solution? And frankly, I think the only solution. The only possible solution has to be self-effectuating. There are some things that people can only do for themselves. The government cannot rescue us. And I do firmly believe that there is no program, there is no policy, there is no trick that involves moving around resources or changing the way we teach kids or curricular reform or anything you could possibly think of that is going to close the black-white test score gap. Well, let, you know, let, me, let me ask you, because the, the CDC just came out with the final birth data for the 2019 year. And to your point, I think for the 12th consecutive year, the overall non-marital birth rate for the entire country, for, all, for people of all races, was 40%. And in the white community, it was nearly 30%. So higher than when Pat Moynihan called a crisis in the black community. Is there actually an opportunity to join forces to say that the issues that you're talking about, these sort of cultural pathologies, aren't so specific to the black community? Because I think the takeaway for many people is that they 
hear this and they it's it's back into the blame the victim categorization is is there an opportunity sure. the, fact that the tsunami is now across race well yeah and i mean especially since there's this enormous gradient in family formation by social class i mean just looking at the white community and charles murray has has noted this for a long time upper middle class whites talk the 60s but they live the 50s in their family formation patterns the out of wedlock birth rate among white women with a college degree is still around with single digits low single digits still which is astonishing i mean if you think about it white women with a college degree for whatever reason get married before they have babies and you know of course there are exceptions everybody knows that single mom who decided to go it alone in her 30s or 40s but they are exceptions i mean they stick out in your mind for a reason whereas if you're a high school dropout or just a high school graduate and white in that group it's 50% or more now so yeah it is approaching getting nearer to black rates but i think what interferes with you know seeing this as really at the end of the day not a racial issue because it's pervasive in our society now is that the there is an absolute determination not to talk about family structure and not to talk about single motherhood or out of wedlock childbearing as a problem you know the whole family diversity all kinds of families are wonderful this whole rhetoric really forbids any constructive discussion i can tell you because i've tried to have these discussions and they are very unfashionable the teen pregnancy there was universal agreement that this was a was a bad thing do you see is it possible to create the same kind of universal support for non-marital births to women 24 and under that existed for teen pregnancy because the issues for the kids and for these young people having children are yeah. almost exactly the same in terms of economic outcome. Yeah, and I mean that's another point that Charles Murray has made that's generally been ignored. We've tamed the problem of teen pregnancy. We've actually made a lot of progress, but the black out of wedlock birth rate, you know, of a high and and it is higher than in other groups. That is only achieved because it's women in their 20s and their 30s that are having children out of wedlock. And really I think the more constructive or revealing way of thinking about it is as a non-marriage problem. Women are going to have babies when they're ready to have babies. The only question is will they have them when they're married or unmarried? In the black community, the answer is overwhelmingly unmarried. And of course, we can shift our focus to black men. Black men are largely non-contributing. They don't they don't stick around. The clichés and the stereotypes are very sadly quite valid marriage is an endangered species in the black community so that's part of it i only think it's part of it i think it's in a very important part of it cuz two heads are better than one and we have a whole group of adults now in the black community who are really just not investing in the next generation and they're called males and i know people will say oh no black fathers are great fathers they spend a lot of time with their children etc cetera, etc cetera, but that's really an exaggeration they spend time for a few years and then they move on 
So we're seeing this underinvestment. I think that that also feeds the black-white achievement gap. I don't know the answer to why the black-white achievement gap has not closed more, why it persists. But I think ultimately it's a problem of culture. It's a problem of intellectual investment, of belief in the future, of belief that if you work hard and if you put in the time and persist and show discipline and just kick ass that you're going to get somewhere. I mean, I I just don't know. But here's what I do know. The answer is not going to come from above. It's not going to come from outside. It has to come from inside the Black community. And I see that going in the very opposite direction. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's what I was going to ask you, sir. We want to wrap up a little bit, but just kind of looking to the future. I mean, obviously now we've figured out we can't have these conversations in academic circles, on college campuses. Fortunately for Ian and I, we can still have them in think tanks. But what do you, where do you see this going? I mean, if, if we can't even have these conversations, if we're soon not going to be even allowed to measure achievement gaps, I mean, we're going right. to get testing. How are we going to ever come to terms with this problem and, and put you know, people of different races back on equal footing? Yeah, well, once again, this is a, it's a very grim picture. I think a lot of, you know, because academia has banished these discussions, completely banished them. I mean, I wouldn't have believed it even a few years ago. There is just a code of silence. It's almost omerta that they can't even be mentioned without an accusation of racism and an attempt to cancel you coming down on your head. Whatever discussion occurs is going to have to happen outside academia. Academia is really a dead letter for this sort of of dilemma. Now, you know, that would be okay and that universities would just render themselves irrelevant. But the problem is that universities educate young people. And that's where I think we really need to be very afraid because what I'm seeing is students who are terrified of seeing anything outside this very narrow Overton window of the acceptable narrative, right, of what's going on. I mean, first of all, it's not just what kinds of explanations you can give for actual problems in our society. It's moved on to wholesale, complete denial that those problems even exist. So it's only recently that I've seen, for example, that students insist that there are no differences in crime rates between different groups. You know, that that was just unacceptable because the facts belied it. Now the facts don't matter, right? Or that there are still, you know, achievement gaps that are real. That that now has to be denied. Or just talking about family formation, family structure, I mean, that's just verboten as well because marriage is this horrible, patriarchal, oppressive institution. The radical feminists have kind of taken over the discussion of family formation, of reproduction, of having children, plummeting birth rates. But only within a certain category, as you said, within the upper class amongst Blacks, Whites, Asian community, marriage is still very much in vogue, right? Yes. I mean, I'm talking about the opinion-shaping institutions. I'm really talking about, you know, the elites who have control of of the we're all, mar- we're all married, by the way, and follow the success sequence in their own lives. 
That, right. Yeah, well, of course, there's that paradox, which is the very people who are dumping on marriage are, you know, married with uh, two kids, three kids and a dog. They <laughs> would chop their daughter's arm off or their own arm off if, they, if she came home and said, I'm having a child at 19, you know, outside of marriage. Well, see, that's the part that remains to be seen. It's interesting. When I tell people that I, you know, I've told my my children, put a ring on it. It's really important to get married. The sooner, the better. They look at me in horror, like, you know, you'll you'll traumatize them. I mean, this is this is child abuse. So, I, oh, all right. Well, I don't uh, know. Amy, Amy Wax I, and Beyonce. Yeah, <laughs> no, this is very countercultural. It's very countercultural to say that sort of thing. I can tell you that. So the paradoxes abound, the tensions abound, but. The real problem in the university now with its merciless dogma, which is really what it is, and this atmosphere of intimidation and threat, which is not an exaggeration, that is what, what's happening, is that it affects the students. And what it means is that the students are not being properly educated. There is this wholesale repudiation of the past, of tradition of history, of literature, you know, it's patriarchal, it's representative of white supremacy. Everything is seen through this ethno-Marxist lens, which comes in to fill this void that is being created by the repudiation of traditional sources of knowledge and wisdom. And all they know is oppressor and oppressed, persecutor and persecuted. Their entire Mental universe consists of an exploration of victimology. And I mean, it is really, it is the junk food of your brain. It, it is your brain on, on intellectual junk food, really. That is what it is. And they are longing for some kind of guidance in life. And, and that is the paradigm that they are being handed to we organize. We are them Doritos. Their experience. It's, it's the, a form of educational Doritos. It's so thin. It's so impoverished and inert, and, and it distorts the full richness of experience. But these people are now going to go out and, you know, run the world with very little to help them and guide them except this indoctrination. And that really concerns me very and much. I think it should concern us all. Yes. Yeah. On that note, we're so glad that you have tenure and that you're still allowed to talk about these things. And you're welcome to come on the podcast and talk about them anytime with us. We need to do a part two. <laughs> so with that, thank you all for listening to Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. And you can thank get you. this podcast on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening.